on a Buddhist shrine, a lot of times you'll see food. And the reason that is there is because one of the meditations you can do is you sit with the hungry ghosts. And the hungry ghosts are all the things you're talking about. Your fear, your anxiety, I can't do it. It's all that stuff. And you sit down and what you do is, is you invite them in. You just say, everybody come in, everybody come in. Cause it's all you, it's Mm -hmm. all you. And you just invite them all in to sit with you. This is a Soulfire production. You're listening to episode 116 of Yes And with me, Judy Holler. And today's magic is brought to you by our friends at Advocare, a wellness company on a mission to support your health needs with high vibe resources supplements and products. And guess what? We have a code. Use yes and one five. That's yes and 15 every time you shop to get discounts and support this podcast when you do. Oh my gosh. I have to tell you, um, today I'm talking to John Regi. John Regi, um, not the, the infamous New York City mobster who he unfortunately shares a name with. Uh, but instead, I'm talking to John Regi, the three-time Emmy award-winning co-executive producer, director, and writer of NBC's 30 Rock Baby, a sitcom. If you don't know, my goodness, go Google it up and get your Netflix binge on. It's a sitcom uh, starring Tina Fey. And oh my gosh, is it just ever so brilliant. That John Regi is on the show today. And John's got some Ohio roots and he currently lives, writes and plays in Los Angeles. And he said to me, he said, listen, you can't phone it in. You have to do your best every single day, even if you're tired, even if you don't feel like it. And if you start to feel like you'll want to phone it in, then that's how you know it's time to quit. And he says he hasn't gotten there yet. I loved that perspective. I think so many times we phone it in. And if you're phoning it in, if you're tired, and if you feel like you are just sort of going through the motions, maybe it's time to reevaluate, to take a look, to remix some things, to add something new. I think my secret weapon over the years, like any time I am stuck, any time I need to deal with a difficult person, every time I need to spark my creative juices, any time I feel like I am in a proverbial rut, yo, what do I do? I add something new. I and it. What's so great about yes and, specifically the and, the transformative power of and, is that it's a motherfucking additive, right? This means we're saying, yes, this is how I feel. Yes, I'm stuck. Yes, I need to make a change. Yes, I'm phoning it in. And here's what I'm going to do about it. Here's how I'm going to make an edit. Here's something new I can put into my life. Here's how I can remix my routine. Here's a hobby I can add. Here's a coach I can hire. Here's a new book I can read. Here's a class I can take, right? So we're obsessed with this notion of movement. And as you hear my conversation with John today, you'll hear some of those themes, you know, this notion of not phoning it in and looking for opportunities to constantly be scratching that itch of transforming your life and finding true joy in it. So we're going to cover some of that today in the podcast. And if you want more of this magic, like on the regular, yo, you've got to check out our monthly house of and mentorship for less than $2 a day. We talk about all this stuff. I mean, one of the things we hear from you all the time, specifically when we're working with our clients and, and leaders around the country is that you want more focus, you want more balance, and you're also fighting exhaustion. You're overwhelmed. You are trying to figure out how to set boundaries that stick so you can have more freedom in your life. I mean, we ask for control, but what we really want is freedom, right? And nine times out of of 10, you're last on your own list, right? And we struggle with self-prioritization. So let me help you fix that. Every month in our mentorship, we're we're talking about goals and boundaries and, and 
identifying our strengths and mental fitness practices and the power of removing limiting beliefs. We cover so much, all of that and so much more. And you know, listen, if you want to try before you buy, you can do that. Link in the show notes. I'm going to give you a free month. So just go to the show notes, get the instructions, but you can use the code open the door at checkout when you put the mentorship bundle in your cart. It'll comp out a month. And what's cool about it is you'll get access to our previous recordings. So you can sort of binge and deep dive and get all caught up. Anyway, every month we hang out for 60 minutes live. These are not pre-recorded unless you miss the live class. You'll hang out with me once a month. And then the following week, you'll get a live office hours with me where you'll come into my office and we get to uh, do live coaching and answer questions and just vibe with the community. So it's, it's such an incredible experience every month. And I'd love to see your shining face there. We're also going to start doing pop-up events around the country and I'm bringing members onto the podcast. And these are opportunities that are only available only available for members. Plus we got our own t-shirts. So if you want to learn more about the House of And mentorship, link in the show notes. I hope to see you in class. Okay. So back to John, our conversation today is going to cover comedy, creativity, mental fitness, and so much more. I was surprised. Uh, he, he's more spiritual than I thought he was going to be. So that was cool. And this interview is just Also, yet another reminder of the gifts you receive when you are brave enough to open new doors for yourself despite doubt. I mean, this conversation wouldn't have even happened if I wasn't brave enough to send an email and ask for it and ask for the introduction despite the possibility of being told no, despite the possibility of being ghosted. And truly, instead of, I took my own advice, instead of going down the rabbit hole of like, oh my God, you know, what if this doesn't work? Or what if they ghost me? Or what if I get told no? Or what if I look stupid? What if I embarrass myself, right? I focused on what could go right. Like what what if he says yes? What if I get John on the show? What if I can make that connection and build that relationship and learn from him and share him with you? And that's what fucking happened. It went right. He said yes. And this conversation is a result of that fear experiment, that and moment. And I cannot wait to share it with you. So here's my conversation with Emmy award-winning producer of 30 Rock, Mr. John Rishi. It's official, John. It's official. Okay, you have to. Is it re, Regi, 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 Regi? It's Regi. John Regi. John. Um, first, have to ask, where in the world are you? Are you in New York? Are you in LA? Where are you? Uh, I'm in LA. Um, okay. uh, currently, yeah. Are you I mean, full time there? there? Yeah, I live here. Okay, yeah. Um, and I also have to ask you how it feels and. Pardon me if you get this all the time, but when I was doing my research on you, you have, how does it feel to have the same name as a very infamous crime boss in <laughs> in American history, if I have this correctly, uh, Giovanni John the Eagle Rigi yeah, is what comes up when I Google you, yo. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I think the, uh, the first thing I think I feel, of course, is pride. Do it, yes. Uh, uh, you know, here's the thing. For so long when I was growing up, I did not know or ever heard my name said by anyone anywhere. Like I never saw another Regi. I never heard of anybody yeah. named Regi. So honestly, when I saw that, because I don't I don't think it's been in the sort of zeitgeist of culture. I mean, not that it is. I mean, you have to go look yeah. it up. But even when I, like, I used to do Google searches to look for people yeah. and I never found that guy until about 15 years ago, maybe. I think I saw him when I, I think I might've become aware of him when somebody told me in New York. Yeah. Giovanni Rigi. But, um, but it's pretty weird. Um, you know, it's, um, <laughs> It's uh, what are the odds of that shit? Have you ever written comedy about it? Here's the question. Do you have any jokes on it? Like, have you ever done, or is this a new discovery kind of? No, because you know what? There's a weird thing in, um, uh, well, I, I, I was about to say in Italian culture. I don't know if it is Italian culture, yeah. just the way I was raised, but we really try to, uh, we really try to downplay the whole mafia 
as much as we can. I can imagine so, why, my friend. Oh, oh my God, it's so overblown. People, yes, a few people got shot who yeah. didn't. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's like that. It's like um, my my mother never talked about it. I do remember, though, that my mother knew a man in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm yeah. originally from, and his yeah. and he had a, um, he repaired televisions. And his name, and his, on his little business cards too, it said his name was Johnny TV in quotes, Johnny TV no. Paluto. No, that's so good. God love him. And uh, I'm pretty sure he was somehow involved in the mob. Yeah, a hundred percent. Right, right. Well, you know, I couldn't I couldn't resist because a, a quick Google search gives you uh, an interesting look at, at at the roots of your name. But, you know, I love that you bring up your mom because uh, I was reading something that said that your mom initially wanted you to be like a doctor or like you had a biology degree. So can we just before we get to like L.A. and Hollywood and the Emmys and creative writing and your process and just all of that stuff. I want to talk about like you, Cincinnati, Ohio, John Regi, like you're a Midwest dude, went to the University of Cincinnati, majored in biology and found yourself doing stand up. Like what, when did that start happening? Were you like the funny guy in high school or was this like twenties and thirties that you were just out exploring stand up comedy and, and what that looked and felt like for you? I was, uh, I was never, I, well, I guess what I would say is I, I had a, you know, I, I had a not, uh, terribly stable childhood I and mean, yeah. it wasn't terrible or yeah. like violent or anything, but my mother was divorced. My mom and dad split up when I was very young. My mother kind of, uh, hooked up with this Italian guy. They never got married. Yeah, he was married to someone else and had his own family, mm. but clearly was with my mom and they started a business together. So he was very entrenched in our lives and he was a very volatile sort of uh, Southern Italian Calabrian uh, lunatic. It would be the best <laughs> way to describe him. And um, right. and so when they would come home, he would drive my home, my mom home on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays from this delicatessen that they ran together and he would stay and have dinner. And there was a lot of boozing it up and stuff yeah. like that. And so I just kind of got, I just started to get funny. Like a lot of people say as sort of a defense mechanism. Mm. If I could make everybody laughing, there wasn't going to be a big fight. And again, the fight was not violent, but it was just loud and Italian and people yeah, screaming. Yeah. And honestly, looking back, it probably wasn't as bad as now that I understand Italian that yeah. they all scream. So it doesn't really mean anything. Oh yeah. So so that was that. And then so then I was always just kind of like funny and my friends thought I was funny, but I never I went to an all boys Catholic high school. I was not out there in front of everybody being the class clown. We had priests that taught us Franciscan priests. I was scared to death of them. No so shit. I yeah, I went to all girls school, too. So I know yeah. it Catholic. Yeah. And we had an all girls high school right across from a seat in high school. So it was the, yeah. boys on one school, the girls on the other school. I was laid low all through high school. What happened was when you say about stand up was I had a friend who I went to college with and she called me one day and said, um, there is, I went to a club, I went to a bar on Saturday night and they do stand up there. And I saw these stand up comics and I didn't think any of them were any funnier than you are at a party. And they said they have auditions. So I think you should go audition. Mm. And because I really wanted to do that. Like I always wanted to be in show business. The reason I have a biology degree is because one day I sort of just mentioned in passing to my mom that I was thinking about being a doctor. <clears throat> and you can't say that to an Italian mother. And it, it was immediately was set in concrete in oh, my yeah. life. My son's a doctor. My yeah. son's a doctor. Yeah. She was on the phone to everybody. Everyone. So proud. So I was pre-med. You know, I liked it. I'm really glad I did it because I still am very interested in the sciences and stuff like that doesn't help me in writing, but I really do like all that stuff. But anyway, so my friend, my friend Katie said, you should go check this out. And I went, I called it, I called up this friend, this friend, this guy who wound up being my friend, Roger, 
was running it. And he said, do you have five minutes of material? And I said, yes, lied. Whoa. He said, okay, Tuesday nights, we have meetings at the club. Why don't you come in and just go to a meeting and see if this is for you? So I go in, I meet all these other struggling comedians who yeah. are just doing different things in their own life. It was a great time for comedy. Mm. And so Roger ran the meeting and went through the whole thing. And then at the end, he said, oh, by the way, this is John. And everybody's like, hey. And, and then to my shock, he said, he's going to do five minutes for us. <laughs> and there was a stage and he sort of said, go ahead. And so I went up and I just improvised because I had nothing. And I wasn't funny, but they laughed because they knew what I was going through. Yes. And I got in and then that's kind of how it started. That really is kind of how it started. And then Ooh. I started getting, doing like little regional gigs. Like I'd go, we'd go to Dayton or we'd go to yeah. Louisville, like anywhere you could drive in a couple of hours. Yeah. And myself and another friend of mine who kind of like sort of rose to the top in this group of people got started started getting sent out to these other clubs that the guy who owned the bar knew and they had all kind of networked. So there was a little thing. Yeah. And then I moved to Chicago. Mm. Ooh. So tell me the years, tell me from you moving to Chicago to like you doing that first five minute improvised set to you moving to Chicago. What, first of all, was this eighties, early nine, early nineties? It'll help me place. It, it was mid eighties. Um, mid yeah, my, comedy. the reason I remember, and this is not to be a bummer, but I had an older sister and she passed away. Oh, shit, I'm and, so sorry. Um, and, but it, you know, that is one of my sort of, uh, one of the tenets in life that I try to hang on to, and I don't always hang on to it as strongly as I need to, but I think everything comes with a gift. Mm. And I think that as a gay man, a young gay man growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, mm. I was kind of not dealing with that kind of, I didn't have a job. I was, uh, I had a job, the company that I was working for kind of dissolved. So I was, I did have no job. I was like on un un unemployment. I was, you know, getting stoned every morning at like 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, just watching TV. And I was kind of like, okay, well, here yeah. is my life and this is what I'm doing. And then my sister got really sick and then she passed away two years later. Mm. And that was in August, I'm sorry, October of 1986. And in June or July of 1987, I moved to Chicago. Wow. And I packed up all my stuff and I moved to Chicago because <clears throat> not at the time, it wasn't consciously this, this note in my head, but I knew, I knew that if I, I knew two things that I knew that you don't have all the time in the world. The universe just demonstrated that to me in a very brutal way, but in a very clear way because my sister passed away. The other thing was I started thinking to myself, if I don't leave now, also I met my boyfriend too in this time, who's now my husband. I was just going to say, are you still together? Yes, we are still together. And so I met him and I thought, if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. I'm going to stay here in Cincinnati and I'm going to wind up taking care of my mother until she passes away. And then I'm going to be this like sad old man who sits in a car in a park and waits for somebody to come by and talk to him. So <laughs> I, I can't do that. I cannot. So, yeah. Yeah. So I did that. Wow. So yeah, regret, you know, I think if there's anything that shook me the most, um, in my time, you know, at second city and studying improv, it was that, you know, we got to move, move for me. Improv was so much about movement and, um, what I'm always trying to avoid when I think about doing scary things and putting myself in the uncomfortable situations is like, yo, I just don't want that regret. And it sounds like regret, um, might've been something that you, you know, your sister, wow, what a loss, but what a gift you have that mindset. We talk no mistakes, only gifts all the time in the improv theater on this show. So tell me, were you going to, to Chicago to study at second city IO? Did you have a group of friends there? I mean, it's such a hub, right? Saturday Night Live, the greats come out of that theater. Did you spend time in the improv theater and at second city? I didn't do a lot of improv. The reason I was going is because this little club where I started, which was called DWI, like an eyeball. So it was mm. DW and an eyeball. 
I don't know why Don called that, but he thought it was clever. It is pretty clever. Pretty clever. Uh, very clever. It was it, the, the, also the the uh, the the logo for it was a pair of it was DW, and then there were there was a pair of eyes with with glasses. It like it looked like I don't. No one knows this. But my one of my favorite books is The Great Gatsby, and it was like Dr. T.J. Eckelberg in that part of yes, uh, Egg that's all burnt out, and those eyes looking at Daisy, and like no. that's what it looked like. Oh God, that's sidebar. Yeah. You can okay. cut that part out. Um, but uh, <laughs> I love it. But the um, the reason I went was because this club in Cincinnati, Cincinnati is about five hours so yeah. or so from Chicago. And so Chicago comics started coming down and performing. And like we like we would have like Emo come, Emo Phillips and Judy Tenuta mm. and um wow. and uh will durst was for some reason was there from san francisco i can't remember why and he would come and be like our weekend headliner and stuff like that and so i met a comedy team called steve and leo steve rudnick and leo benvenuti and i became very good friends with them and so they started we started doing things where they would come up on they'd come up on a weekend and they'd come up on like friday night and saturday night and then saturday night i would get in the car with them and go back to Chicago yeah, and go up there and do sets and get introduced to the scene and stuff like that. And then I just bus it back home. And that's what I was doing. So then I started realizing that Chicago was so much better than Cincinnati. And so I moved. Yeah. You made it official. Um, so it sounds like your discipline. Um, and I want to get to how this has influenced you as a writer, but it sounds like your discipline is really the stand-up comedy route. While you probably are comfortable, I mean, your first set was improvised, right? Improv. So improv requires you to have done the work on yourself, right? In order to be able to improvise in the moment. And a lot of, I think the big misnomer a lot of people have about improvisers in the improv theater is that we're unprepared and that we just sort of like wing shit. Like while we can wing things. And while we have a deep sense of self-trust, I think it's doing that work on the front end, like, you know, really trusting yourself, having a good ensemble, all the things that we do to prepare, right? I didn't just show up for this interview and I'm not going to fucking disrespect you and wing it, right? I'm going to have done the work so that I can be in the moment with you. So tell me, you know, as I share one of those lessons for me from the improv theater, what do you think is so different between stand-up and improv? Because a lot of people are like, oh, she's a stand-up comedian. I'm like, yo, no, that is so, that is such a different different discipline. Do you mm -hmm. feel that way? Or do you feel that there are more parallels than, than I may be assuming? I, think, I, I, I would say, I think they are very different. And the only thing that I, the two things I would say to that is I think that for me at any given moment on any given, like here's, here's my, maybe it's a disconnect from imp, from standup. Um, but it is why I think standup is different. I agree with you than improv is that, you know, all my friends had their act. They would work on their act. Yes. I always had a, I always had a weird disconnect of that because my feeling was like, every audience is different. So I don't know how you build this quote unquote act that is going to work with, work optimally with every single audience. Like it'll always, you'll always reach the 95 percentile with this set yeah. in front of any group of people. <clears throat> I kind of didn't believe that. So I started to do, I was willing and ready to abandon my act at any moment when I was on mm -hmm. stage. My, my setup material that I would do, I was willing to just drop it. So then what would you pull from? If I'd you just start of improvise, I'd start talking no about shit. the day and things that happen. And, you know, I, I think that when you are a person that lives in the world of comedy, it's not like, you know, I'll tell a story to people and, and they'll go, I don't know how these crazy things happen to you. And I always in my head think crazy things don't happen to me. The same things that happen to me happen to you. I just, I just look at them in a different way. Like I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a different mindset of what's happening in my brain as opposed to what I think you might be thinking. Mm. Like, I think you are thinking like, to me, it's always, it's, it's just a little bit more, I don't know, esoteric or something. 100%. Metaphor. So yeah. So that's why I don't, 
Like, I do think they are two very different styles, but like, even I did a, I did an HBO one night stand and, and I didn't know this cause I was again, new and I didn't know how it worked. So we went down to Miami beach to shoot it and you did one set and then they brought in a new audience and then you did a second set. And the idea was mm-hmm. do the same set twice and then they'll edit it together. Well, first of all, no one actually literally said it out loud like that in my own defense. <laughs> so my first set, I was like, after I got with my first set, I was like, that was good, but I don't think it was great. I felt a little confined and I didn't feel loose enough and whatever. So the second set, I went up and I probably changed 70% of what I did was just either new stuff or stuff I was thinking on the moment wow. or, or stuff that had happened since I'd been in Miami that I thought was funny, that I thought I could get comedy out of. And I found out that like they were shooting and in the control room, like in the, in, in the, in the uh, control room, they were like, what is he doing? Like yeah. this, none of this is the same, but I just didn't want to, do it again the same way because I didn't think it went that well. So I, I was always willing to abandon it. Uh. The only thing I can say. And then when I got out here, um, I would go to, I did not, not on um, a regular basis, but I had friends at the groundlings and I would do groundling shows yeah. with them and cool improv games and stuff like that, which I always was willing to do because my biggest thing about it is that's what I think it is. Are you willing? I, I think there is preparation. I agree with all the things that you were saying, but the biggest thing I think it is, is are you just open to doing it? Are you mm. willing to just go out there and say, yeah, let's try this because I'm, I'm going to say yes. And to all this, to all this that's coming into me, to my fear in this moment, to the fact mm-hmm. that I'm thinking, I don't have anything to say to all those things. I'm saying yes. And to all of it. And somehow it, it, Goes, to me, it goes like that. It's literally this hand gesture. It's like it comes in and it goes out. It comes it's flow. In out. It's flow. Yeah. yeah. I love that so much. So do you, um, and ladies and gentlemen, don't just take it from me. Take it from a what? Four-time Emmy award-winning producer and writer. And I love that you snuck yes and into that. So a lot of people get stuck creatively. They get in their head. They feel like what they have isn't good enough. Improv can help us with this, no doubt. Um, And I'm always making the joke like, yo, you want to be more creative? Date that shit. Hang out with it. Use it. Look for it, right? If you want to be braver, do scary shit to get braver, right? To get more comfortable in uncomfortable things. You want to have a great relationship with your spouse, partner, significant other, date them. It all kind of works the same. Creativity, fear, you got to hang out with it. So how are you hanging out with your creativity? Do you like walk around with like a notebook? Because you you probably have your head on a swivel as a writer of iconic shows. Like you have to be looking for those everyday moments and think when someone like me sees, and well, I'm a bit of a writer too, but not like you, but like a normal person may say, for example, John, oh, that funny thing just happened on the bus. Ha. Huh? cool. And then they leave it. You take the funny thing that happens on a bus and probably go, oh shit, that's a story. That's a metaphor. That's something big we can write into a scene, a story, whatever. How do you, how do you collect these ideas? Is it memory? Is it a notebook? Is there a process? I don't have a notebook. I generally tend to remember everything that hits me in that way, because I think that, um, and I've always been like this. It's just, I have a you know, I'm just a really real, I, I, I think part of it is, is I'm just a very emotional person. Like I can, like, I kind of have two speeds. I'm either really, really happy or I'm in this terrible depression. Oh my God. Why I, is that? Well, I say, I feel like so many improvisers and writers are yeah, so similar. I'm I, the same. Right. Because I think that middle spot, which is great. I think that's actually good for like having a normal life, which we don't right. like to have. But I, either the world is falling apart or I'm the king of the world and everything's great. And, and so when things hit me, um, I, I don't even know how to describe it really, Judy. I, I don't know how to say it. I, I, I just, things hit me hard and I don't forget them. I just don't. Mm. Like if something, you know, 
if something happens to me that I see that seems really funny to me, I will just remember it. Or if something happens to me that I think was kind of tragic, mm. but I can, I can put it into it because I also like that. Like my, my style of comedy is, especially since I've been writing is I like to see if I can, if I can butt some really funny moment right up against a moment of sadness and see if I can get away with keeping them both alive in the same little test tube. Ooh. And, um, and my favorite comedies do that. It's, it's one of the reasons the things I watch are all like that. Why mm -hmm. I loved Fleabag, for instance, why, you know, just shows that did that always spoke to me on a more personal level. So I don't know. I don't, I just don't tend to forget it. I, mm. I it really sounds like don't. it's a spiritual process for you so much too. Like you're intrinsically affected when you are intrinsically affected and moved by something good or bad. You, you, you sort of use that inner knowing that inner gut, that intuition, that thing that lights John up to, to keep it in the bank or to put it down on paper. It sounds like it affects you like at a, at a whole whole spiritual I level. To. I try to, I mean, I also think it's, it's sometimes it becomes so personal that I do think, is this too personal? Is mm. this too my, is this too my take on it? Is it too yeah. not universal enough? It's like, that's, I'm always looking for this. I'm, I'm, I feel like sometimes it can get a little too niche and that scares me about yeah. the way I look at things because I don't think I, you know, I don't think and I, and I don't want to, I really am reluctant to say this out loud, but I don't want to sound like I'm all enlightened by saying something like when my sister died, I saw a gift in it. Because let me tell you something in the months and even years right after she died, I didn't see any fucking gift. I was mm -hmm. like devastated and didn't know where my life was going and everything else. But it's now, it's now all these years later that I look in the rearview mirror of my life and I go, oh my God, it sent me to this place. Like it, it did exact, it did a thing that had it not happened. I am, oh. and I have no proof of this because we're living in this reality. But in my heart, I say to myself, if that had not happened, if that had not happened, I literally would not be on this podcast right now talking to you. I know it. I just, I can't prove it. I just know it. I no. know that that was meant to do something bigger than in the moment I was unable to see. I, and I try to remember that. I fucking love that so much. And I have goosebumps right now because I feel that on a soul level, because I think one of the most transformational mindset shifts a human being can make out of the improv theater, certainly um, using the yes and idea is really highlighting the and because what you just told me is a possibility driven mindset. It's perspective. And I think so many people through this pandemic and everything we've got going on have woken up to a new perspective on things. And we have one or two choices. We are, we are going to lose people. We love people are going to leave us. People are going to piss us off. We're going to have good things happen, bad things happen. And all of it's for whatever, but what you decide to do with it next is what fucking pours gasoline onto what happened next. And this is why, John, we're chasing the ampersand, right? Because I think and is really the fucking star and is possibility and is you opening the door to what could be on the other side of something tragic or something you didn't see coming. And I think improv and that mindset really gets you ready for for all that tough stuff, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, when you were saying about bringing all that stuff in, I, I feel like I, I was a, for a long time, I was very much and still am, but I don't, I'm not involved in like a, a temple like I used to be, but I used to be involved in a Buddhist temple for a long mm. time. And it wasn't like groovy LA Buddhist temple <laughs> in Beverly Hills. This was like in Koreatown and it was Holy hardcore. Shit. Oh, geez. Oh, yeah. And, geez and, of Buddhism. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, they were, this was like the real thing. And my, uh, I had a teacher at Reverend Karuna and she was awesome and fantastic. And I loved her so much and she's passed away, but uh, she, the two things that I, that I, that I, again, carry around with me from her is she had, she had had a real, she was the first woman to be 
ordained in the Vietnamese tradition of Buddhism in the United States. And she had had a stroke uh, before I ever met her. And she walked with two canes and she, she used to live across the street and then the Sangha was, was opposite her house. And she, she'd have to cross the street by herself. <clears throat> and then there were steps that came up to the Sangha because it was on a little berm on the hill. And she'd come hobbling across the thing. And, and very early on, it was like, you don't help Reverend Karuna cross the street. Reverend Karuna wants to cross the street by herself. She doesn't need your help. Don't do that. So I learned very early not to, not to offer her help. And she would come rambling up the steps and she'd come up to the Sangha. And I'd usually be staying outside having a cup of tea. And I would say, good morning, Reverend Karuna. And she'd be like, good morning, John. And I would always say to her, how are you? And she would say, I'm very well, thank you. And mm. she meant it. That's all I need to say, she meant it. And because she used to tell us about this thing that we, and this is, gets to your other point. She used to tell us this thing and we, we used to do this, temp, this um, meditation, but like on a Buddhist shrine, a lot of times you'll see fruit and food. And the reason that is there is because one of the meditations you can do is you sit with the hungry ghosts. And the hungry ghosts are all the things you're talking about. Your fear, your anxiety, I can't do it. I don't know if I can make this relationship work. It's all that stuff. And you sit down and what you do is, and it's super difficult, but you do it, is you invite them in. Ooh. You just say, everybody come in, everybody come in. Cause it's all you, it's mm. all you. And you just invite them all in to sit with you and let them talk and let them say what they're afraid of. And your job is to say, okay, that's okay. Sure, you're allowed to feel like that. You're allowed to feel like you're a failure at your job right now. That's fine. You're allowed to feel that fear. And what it is, is it's the opposite of Eastern, it's opposite of Western philosophy, which is we tend to, and we are told to, push all that stuff out of your brain and only think positive thoughts and make yourself go. And the Eastern philosophy is like, no, 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 pull that all in. Because when you pull it all in, you can, it, it goes from being this giant monster to a thing that you can, you can, you can confine. Like I always say to me, like when, when we were talking about it to one time, I told Karuna, she said, how do you interpret that? And I said, <clears throat> to me, it's like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. She said, I said, you know, when Indy is, he finally gets the, the skull and he, he like takes the skull and he replaces it yes. with the thing of a sand. I said, and then the big rock comes Yes. and he's running and he's running and he's running. And I said, and that to me is Western philosophy. And I think what Indy needs to do if mm -hmm. he was a Buddhist was just turn around and let the yeah. stone come to him. And then when the stone comes to him, it'll stop right here. And then in a cut in the film, the next thing he'll be able to do is he'll pick it up and in his hand and it's a pebble. Oh. Not as good of an Indiana Jones Ooh, Doom movie, but that's, that's what I, I try so hard every day to do that. And sometimes I feel like I climb up that wall and I get to peek over the top and I go, oh my God, it's all out there. It really is all out there. Yeah. I just have, it's hard to get up this wall though. And it's hard to look over. But if you do look over, there is something on the other side. And it mm -hmm. is um, contentment of being mm -hmm. where you are. And, okay. and so then going back to comedy, then all this human condition that seems in the moment so tragic and sad and I broke my leg or whatever the hell it is that you want to write about, you can kind of make any of that funny because you can say it's not permanent. It's not going to stay. And our reactions to stuff is what's so funny because we think we're in control. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. Uh, you're a pretty spiritual guy, huh? I guess I am. I think I'm becoming more spiritual as I, the older I get, Me but too. I, yes, I, I, I feel like, like we were saying, I feel like the longer you're kind of on the planet. I'm coming so late to this uh, phrase, but I literally saw it on High Fidelity one night and um, and one of the characters was talking about somebody's birthday and they said, well, you made another trip around the sun. Yeah, yeah. And I was I like- I say that to people on their birthday. I'm like, 
congratulations. Welcome to another trip around the sun. I know that's so great because again, being kind of have a bio a science background, I'm like, that's a big distance. That's yeah. a big distance. And yet it's a tiny distance tiny because distance. we're here for a second. Second. So it's like, again, like it's like everything else I believe in. It's like yin and yang. It's like, feels like forever. It's not forever. It's yeah. like, to me, it's like, it's all about looking at the other side of whatever the thing is that you're looking at. I love and it. that is hard to do for sure. But I try to do it and I try to, um, and I just try to enjoy things because I'm, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, I, because I know it's not, everything is going to keep moving on. We're on this timeline and it just yeah. keeps, you know, as they said in, <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> In steel magnolias, time keeps marching on until one yes, day you're right across your face. Um, yes, it does. And so I just try to remember that time is temporary, you know. And um, you know, what are we going to do with it? And I think one of the big, um, another one of the big lessons, you know, we're always talking about. This is why we love and so much. And the ampersand is, you know, it's all about movement. We've just got to keep moving. So, what keeps you moving? Like, what do you read? What do you listen to? Do you have any podcasts you're obsessed with right now? Do you do a lot of reading and looking around? And maybe to that end, what are some comedic influences in your work? As um, you think about how you create and what you love watching and listening to any yeah. shows that um, you well, are I watch, obsessed with. I watch, I'm obsessed with, uh, it's my second time through it, but I'm obsessed with uh, Shit's Creek because I was oh my God. when it first started. And then it's I'm everything. watching it now. And it's everything. everything to me. It is everything to me. As a and writer, you have to be drooling over that show. I'd say it's up there with 30 Rock, John. I mean, it is brilliantly written. I think it is, I would even say it goes beyond 30 Rock in the sense that I think it did something that we kind of didn't do too mm. much in 30 Rock, which was, we kind of we kind of shied away from any sort of emotional grounding moment. Uh -huh. like when, when, when Patrick sings, uh, you're simply the best to David, I mean, if I talk about too long right now, I'll start I'll crying. Cry. I know, I just got goosebumps. So beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I love his whole philosophy about it of like, you know, and he's not, and he wasn't ragging on anybody, but like writing wise, he was saying, you know, I've seen a lot of shows where like, it's the tortured gay couple who can't oh, show each other right. they love. And he goes, and I just wanted to write a show where it was kind of okay. Yeah. And, and it, it was, was beautiful so, and, yeah, and real. So refreshing, you know what I mean? So I love that. I guess my, you know, comedy influences, Gary Shandling was a big, big one for you influence to me and a person who taught me probably my biggest comedy mantra, which is um, he would say to us all the time, don't write jokes, write, watch, study the behavior of the people and then write about that, right? Make the scene about the behavior. Don't make the scene about the jokes because people don't talk in jokes. Or he would say, we're not going to talk in jokes on this show. Now, mm -hmm. I've been on other shows like 30 Rock where we had to write jokes. And I can write jokes and I enjoy writing jokes and that's fun. And it's always fun to craft a really funny, good joke. But I do know the difference between and I do believe in the fact that you're closer to reality if you are writing a character-based comedy about a person who just has a, like on Schitt's Creek. I mean, they do have jokes per se, but that's literally the character telling a joke as opposed to the writer writing the joke and just putting it in the character's mouth. And the mm. character kind of doesn't know, like David knows what he's saying when he yeah. slams his sister for something. You know what yeah. I mean? That's a different thing than, you know, a, a sitcom where people just walk in and say jokes to each other. And they're just like, well, is the, you know, are we fixing the hose or not? You know, um, so, so that's, so that's a big influence of mine too. As far as reading stuff, you know, I tend to read, uh, you know, I read my boss's book. I read uh, Bossy Pants. I read, um, I don't read a lot of those kinds of books, but um, because I was so, I was there when that book was happening, I was like, well, I obviously, I want to read it. And yeah. And, um, but I tend to read like, 
Yeah, I don't read a lot of comedy. Like I just read Michelle Obama's book. Yeah. I um, I read, uh, I can never remember the name of it, but I read this book that my, we moved to, my husband and I last November, uh, David was absolutely convinced that um, there was going to be a revolution in the country after the election. So we <laughs> left, we yeah. left day before election on November and we moved to London for and we lived in London for two and a half months no way and I read a bunch of books there and I love read that. hold on one second I'll tell you what it was. oh I love hearing what people are reading so go get it go get it um I can't find it but it's, it's it okay. was it was about the Spanish Civil War and it was oh, cool. um, it was a really cool story and I really liked it and I cannot I can remember the it's, name of it it's um, all good it's all but, good yeah, so those are the kinds of things I read. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I don't read as much as I want to because I'm always like, I mean, I could tell you I read like stupid shit that isn't important. Like I'm obsessed with French and I speak, oh, cool. I learned how I taught, I went to school to learn how to speak French. Wow. I know oui, oui. no one in my life is, no one in my life is French. Um, but I really like it. So I wind up like, I'm reading this right now. Oh, I French, love it. So you it's a French murder mystery. Oh, fun. So you're uh, finding ways. I love that you disconnect from the work because I get asked that all the time. I'm like, I need to, I'm not always reading the stuff in my space. I think one of our big jobs as a creator is to, I always make the joke. I liken the work of a creator to, and really a, a successful human being, however you just define success to like a DJ. Think about right. it. Would you go to a club if all the DJ did was spin the same record over and over and over? Like you got to remix your life. You got to remix your feed you got to remix the books you read the people you follow I get my inspiration from like tap dancers and graffiti artists and uh comedians and tattoo artists all the way up to like certainly best-selling authors but you gotta remix it so I love that you're out there pulling from the universe what you need um yeah. that makes me super happy I love to hear that yeah I read a lot of different stuff I would also I mean it's over in the other room but I, I read and have dog-eared uh, this. I'm a gigantic Beatles fan and I read mm. and there's a book called All We Are Saying that is the last interview that John Lennon gave. He gave a big in-depth interview to Playboy magazine here in Yoko. Um, and, uh, and there's so much in there that I like dog-ear because I'm just like, that's so true. So it's like, if you look at this book, there's like, dog-eared pages yeah. everywhere and little notes in there and stuff like that because I think he really was kind of on to something and um uh like you know the, the last thing the other thing I it, it was just what we were talking about again it's just a different version of saying it but the guy was from Playboy was saying you know you've been gone for five years and he goes I really haven't been gone I've just been doing other things and mm. he's like you know it's like the I Ching says uh the I Ching says you you breathe in and you breathe out and we've been breathing in that's what Yoko and I have been doing. We've been in the Dakota and we've been breathing in and now we're breathing wow. out. We're breathing out and we're putting out this album. Hmm. But his whole thing was like, I wanted to go do this. I wanted to go take care of my kid and bake bread and sit in this apartment and let her take care of the business stuff. I was a beetle. I was out there for 10 years, enough for now. And I'm recharging and now I'm ready to do it again. And, and it, and it's about like sitting still, like when you're sitting still, a lot of stuff is still happening to you, even though you're sitting yeah. still. Yeah, I love that. I think so many people, and that's really going to land with our listener because we do a lot of breathing out. We're doing, 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 go, 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 that we almost feel shame and guilt around the breathe in moments or like we're going to miss out. And certainly in this culture of like social media and constantly being connected, you feel like if you're not posting or you're not there, you don't have a million likes or a million followers, you're worthless and you're nothing. And you know what? Throughout time and throughout history, people, been running businesses and writing books and producing television shows well before the advent of these slot machines in our pockets. And so I think the people who have the the courage to uh, take just as seriously breathing in as they do breathing out have a lot more fucking fun along the way. And maybe yeah. we'll be alive to see it yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we'll, we're going to kill ourselves. I mean, you can't grind, grind, grind and not. So how do you you're so rooted and real and grounded, you know, 
is this your Ohio Midwest boy roots? How have you, how have you maintained that in a world of Hollywood, in a world of New York, in a world of, um, celebrity? What keeps you so real? What helps you be like this? It's refreshing. Um, well, thanks. I think that, um, I guess I'm just, I'm just interested in, I'm interested in people. I really am. I just, I like meeting people and I'm interested in people and I like being around people. And, um, and I've met people that wound up being not what I thought they were going to be. And that was disappointing, but I'm always kind of curious and I'm always interested. And, you know, I, I again, I, I, I tend to make these like weird connections in my brain, but I remember when I was, when I first got out here, I thought I was going to do what everybody else does, which was, I was a stand-up comic and I was going to come out and somebody give me a sitcom and that would be my life. And that didn't turn out uh, to be true <clears throat> for a number of different reasons, but I was at this acting school um, in Hollywood that is gone now. And, um, and uh, there was a, and one night uh, we had a cinematographer come in to speak to us. And I cannot remember his name. His name is Conrad. I always remember his last name. His name is Conrad somebody. His last <laughs> name escapes me. He but will he remain did, nameless. He did the French Connection. He did Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. He did like the golden <sighs> age of American cinema. And I remember somebody said to him, what makes, what do you think makes a good movie? And he was old at then. He was like 70 then. And he literally just said, in an instance, he didn't even think of beat. He just said, tell a good story. Oh, yeah. And I guess that's what I'm always looking for. And I find that everybody has a story and everybody has a, everybody has a story to tell. And sometimes most of the time they're really interesting. And so I, I have that going for me, I guess. When I first got here, I guess I would say I was much more into the, to, quote Joni Mitchell, the star maker machinery of Hollywood, but I just don't really believe in it anymore. I don't, I don't believe in it in like that person is so much above anyone else that I've met because they're an actor. And I, and I always applaud that when I hear somebody say that of like, like what I do is like, you know, I still have my college friends and, and, my, I, my friend Katie, who told me to go to DWI, I talked to her every Thursday night on Zoom. I and, love it. You know, and I know, and they always are like, who'd you, what celebrity, did you talk to any celebrities? Give me some or what, yeah, like what <laughs> projects are you working on? Right. Which is fine. I'm happy to tell them. But then I'm also like, what's going on with your kids? Yeah. Like what's happening? Like. I'm a real I'm, person. Right. Yeah. I'm right. interested. I don't mind you asking me that. I also would like to ask you what's happening in your life because I find that equally as interesting. And maybe one of the reasons I find it interesting is because that's something in my life that I don't have. Yeah. So it's not familiar to me, just like right. this isn't familiar to you. I understand the glamour element to it, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't hit me in that way. I'm not, you know, I'm not without an ego, but mm -hmm. I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I, I love that. I, it's hard for me. I, guess what I would say it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't really. Uh, I, I, I'm just I'm just trying to be a good person. Yeah, you're just a human, another human in the world. Hashtag everybody poops. Right. Yeah. I'm always trying to remember that, like before I get on any interview or do anything scary. And honestly, it's like, OK. You know, I am worthy. I am worthy of this moment. I am worthy of this conversation. Even before I get on the air with you, it's like, I'm worthy of this conversation. I've put, I've done the work to put myself in this place and I've put myself out there to ask. I mean, gosh, it was even just asking for the introduction. Like, Hey, you know, would do you think you'd make an introduction? It'd be awesome to talk to this guy. And here we are today. Right. So it's a little bit of betting on yourself, but also a little bit of being grounded that, you know, what's meant to be is, is on its way to you. And when you get it, enjoy it and, yeah. and, and work hard for it and respect, respect it. So we've, 
we've got, uh, before I let you go, we got a couple. So I was letting uh, my community know that I was going to be talking to you, right? That you produced 30 Rock and the whole thing. And um, I was like, okay, what questions? What questions do we have? Any questions? So we've got some fan questions. Okay. Um, just a couple. Um, I'm going to pick my favorite three. Uh, number one, um, do you have a favorite? We have to go there. A favorite Liz Lemon line. Uh favorite Liz Lemon. I mean, there's line. so many. I would say, I would say, well, I want to go to there. Was I want to go favorite. to there. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. It's so good. Okay. Here's another one. How much of 30 Rock was the actors scripted and how much of it was straight up improv? You know, you hear this on some sets um, that improvisers so how much? Very, very, very little improv. I, I, we really crafted the scripts and uh, Robert and myself and the other writers, it was a very writerly show. So the writers were kind of in charge of everything and you did not, um, you did not improvise on that show or change lines on that show. Occasionally Alec would say, I want to say something else or, or sometimes we would, what would really happen is not often, but sometimes we'd rehearse and we kind of go, mm, it's yeah. not quite that. And so we kind of rewrite it a little bit right before we shot it. But it was pretty much the way we wrote it was the way you saw it. Cool. I love it. Um, and with such strong writers that that makes sense. How has comedy writing changed in the era of cancel culture? I guess, meaning people might be afraid. You're hearing this a lot. Comedians afraid to put things out or to say what they want to say because everybody's offended. So what, what, how's well, that? You know, I guess what I would say is I, I, I think that being aware of people's sensitivities is always important and good. But I, I would say the thing that cancel comes through, at least for me, that the kind of the part of it that I'm not, that I find unfortunate is there was a time when people used to hear Archie Bunker talk about black people in a, a racist way. And the audience knew that Archie was the joke. Mm -hmm. The joke was that a man, a grown man would think those things and say them out loud. And we, the audience, would respond by going, that's crazy that he's doing that. I know people that do that. Yeah. And they're wrong in their thinking. I think we live in a culture now, and based on our past political history, where a lot of people now, if you put Archie Bunker on television, there would be a significant number of people that would watch Archie Bunker and go, right on. I believe that too. That guy's saying exactly what I think. What a shame. And I think that's a big, I think because of that, we are in a dangerous spot in our history as a society, not because of counterculture or a cancel culture, but because of what, what the implication is of like, we have lost, mm -hmm. I think, my opinion, we have lost track of what, comedy used to be able to do for a society that was well-informed enough to understand that it is using, we were using those jokes to point out a behavior that was not acceptable. Now it feels like, and now because I think these things are linked, because so many people feel the opposite way, it's starting to feel like when you, when you make a joke like that or when those jokes are made, it's like, you're being insensitive to women. You are making fun of, of people of color. You're doing all these things. And it used to be used as something else. And so that's, and so I think that it has, if it's, to me, it has the other part of it. I would say, I don't think it's changed it that much because you can always find humor in something. And it's, it's not like that was, that was the whole box of humor that there right. was to put in. But I do think that it's, um, I do think that it's unfortunate. You know, I just will say for me, I knew the difference and I've always known the difference between a gay, being a gay man and being around my straight friends and they might make a joke about 
being gay that is just meant as a sort of funny kind of like, aren't we all, aren't we always human beings? Yeah. Isn't, isn't every aspect of our sexuality, whether you're gay or straight or bi or trans <laughs> or whatever, isn't it, doesn't it all have really? funny elements to it? Aren't we all kind of like, don't we all feel like there are moments in our sexual lives that could be funny if somebody yes. saw me doing this? But I also know the difference between that and someone who is maliciously trying to make fun of me yeah. and maybe says something that they think is humorous. And I know that they are they are going after me. There's an intent, a different an intent. intent. And, yeah. and, and I think that 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 the that the intention has the the ability to to understand the intention of it has gone away. And yeah. so now we're in this position where it's n none of it is to be said. None of it is to be um, uh, uttered in any way. And yeah. that's okay. Like I said, that's okay. But I think, I think we have lost a, a, a tool by which we could point things out if we were talking to an audience that wasn't, some of whom are now going, I don't think that everyone I don't think women should get paid as much as men. I don't think women is, are as smart as men. I don't think women should, you know, have positions of power because, you know, they're weak and, you know, and I know people and have spoken to people now that go, yeah, me too. Me too. Good for you. I don't exactly what's, know what's funny about this, but I agree with what that dude's saying on TV. Like, I, I think that that is a real thing and I get it. But just the other side of it is, makes me sad a little bit because I, yeah. not sad, but I just go, it's unfortunate that, that that some people aren't paying attention anymore. Yeah. Oh yeah. And as a writer, certainly with, um, you know, the public distribution of your creations, you know, as I can't imagine the conversations in a writer's room, right? Because you are impacting the masses. So I just wonder if they've shifted a little bit, like, what are you, uh, maybe to wrap up, like, what are you working on? What are, what are the projects that are filling your time that you can share? You know, are you still dipping in stand up? Are you fully only writing? Are you on a new show? Oh, what are I you haven't doing? done, I haven't done standup in so long. And I wasn't sure. I didn't think so. I couldn't find anything anywhere. And I went down the John Reggie black hole and I. No, I, I, I didn't, you know, I used to do, uh, uh, I, I used to do a thing out here called Uncabaret, which was more like spoken word and also was Fun. a sort of improvised standup set. If you can imagine that the idea was the only See, rule that would was be wild. Yeah, the only rule was you can you can do whatever you want. It's just something you have never said on stage before. Ooh. So that was the idea. You could tell a story. You could, and you basically you're going to tell the story and you're going to craft it in front of these people and see if you can make it work. Awesome. That's where I think that's what I was trying to say before about improvised stand up. I think you can kind of blend the two. That's it. Blend those two, and you yeah. just do that and see what you can do with it. Yeah. So, um, so but I haven't done that in ages okay. um i basically been doing and i haven't been working on any shows i have been directing i've been developing i we developed a show for uh a disney plus uh, uh we sold a pilot to them and i wrote it but then nice. the executive who ordered it got fired so then that went away and then we did a thing for freeform uh, that was, it took place in the weight loss world, which I am obsessed with. Um, that was also oh, cool. funny, but then they, they bought it, but then decided not to do it. Um, and right now we're currently working on something, uh, that we're about to go out with that. I don't want to say too much about, but we're doing yep. that. And then we have another thing that we're doing. We just started another project with Annapurna, uh, that has to do with, um, the Wizard of Oz, that's kind of cool. Oh. Um, I told him, I said, as soon as you said Ruby Slippers, you had me. So you had um, me at Ruby Slippers. So, yes. so, so I'm doing stuff like that. So I haven't, and I've been directing. So I haven't been really in writers' rooms, but I do know that, um, I do know that it has changed. And I do know that, that the sensitivity levels, levels in writers' rooms are higher than they yeah. used to be. 
and you have to be careful and you have to, um, you know, just be thoughtful about what you say. And for someone who is a comedy writer, and I've been around for a while now, I find myself saying, oh, don't say that. Like, mm. just don't say that because yeah. it's, it's just a innocent comment, but you don't really know this person that well. Yeah. And they might take it the wrong way. And then there's going to be a thing and that's not good. Yeah. And so, so I do know that that exists, but I have not experienced it on a daily basis myself. Mm. Well, the name of the show is Yes And. Certainly a life mantra for myself and uh, one of the first things we learn in the improv theater. So I'd love to leave this episode by asking you what yes and means to you. Um, I think it means, to me, it means, the, again, the biggest thing that I always try to hang on to, which is uh, possibility, welcoming possibility. Yes, and bring it on, keep bringing it. Um, because, you know, and again, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this back to you as and quit with this is I, one of my favorite um, stories uh, it's in that John Lennon book, but I knew it already because I'm a, I'm a Beatles nerd. I love it. Is when John met Yoko, he met her, she was going to have an opening at an art gallery and she, he went in and, um, and he went in, to this art gallery and it was all Yoko's art, which was very avant-garde and very avant-garde for that time period, which was early, late sixties or early seventies. And there was like, you know, there was like an apple on a stand and it was $4,000. And he was like, right. and, and he talks about it and says, you know, I got the humor of it right away. I got like, it's an apple on a stand, but it's $4,000, but yet it's art and whatever. And he was like, but I was kind of walking around going, whatever. And then he said, in the middle of the art gallery, there was a stepladder and there was a blank canvas that was bolted into the ceiling. And there was a chain with a magnifying glass at the end of the chain. And the idea was to, you walk up the stepladder and you grab the magnifying glass and you look at the thing. And so he did it. And in the middle of the magnifying, in the middle of the canvas, in tiny, tiny letters, it said, yes. And he said, if it had said no, I would have probably walked out and left because at that time, avant-garde art was all about, you'd walk into a room and a guy would take a sledgehammer and destroy a piano, or there was someone would rip shit up on stage. It was all to him very violent and very negative. But he walks in, he walks up that stepladder, he looks through the magnifying glass and he sees the word yes. And it just felt like, whoever this person is, they're open. Mm. And that's what I would say. Damn. I love that. What a great story. And you said one of my favorite words, possibility. Um, That's for sure what it means for me. So uh, John, thank you for thank being you. on Yes And. You are the man. It's been so fun to have you here. Thank you. Um, what a gift. All right. So what did you think about that conversation? So good, right? So good. I definitely learned a few new things and my goodness, I hope you did too. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway was. I always love to know. So tag me on social media, the social meds. When you share it, let me know, send me a DM, talk to me. You can always email me at hello at judyholler.com with your show ideas, feedback, and inspiration. And if you loved this episode or found any value, whatsoever. It would mean the world to me if you would leave a review on iTunes and yo, share this with someone you love, pass it on, share it with a friend. My gosh, it means the freaking world to me. I thank you for spending your time here with me for listening. And until we meet again next week, babe, you better keep opening those doors. We'll see you next week.